0: can rebuild a motor, reboot your computer, even kickstart the old scooter. But what do you do when your own mojo is mutilated? Aww. That's where we step in. Welcome I got my to, work to the Mojo Radio Show. But it just won't work
1: on Hey, everybody, and welcome to or welcome back to the Mojo Radio Show. I hope you're staying safe in these challenging times. The big red bus is out of the shed. Final preparations are being made. few modifications. Uh, something interesting about the big red bus by way of staying ahead of the trend, the curve, as everybody talks about. It turns out that we can expect a boom in road trips. RV companies are reaping the reward from the virus outbreak, it seems. International travel and a lot of local travel is going to take a while to bounce back and getting permission to leave one's borders could be a bit tough with all the documentation and the rigours of health checks. What they're saying now is that because of that, world travellers could be taking to the road. So it looks like the big red bus is once again ahead of the trend. If you're new on the bus, what's the show all about? Well, we find interesting people with a point of view, an opinion on something. We talk to them to find out what is it they do, how do they do it, and how do we apply that to our own world to get our mojo working, or perhaps help a friend who's going through a hard time to help them get their mojo working they're feeling a bit flat or a bit off, Uh, Once again, a big thank you to our Patreon supporters. You know who you are, some of which I've Zoomed again this week. So it's nice to have you on the bus. VIP seats on the bus, of course. All the perks and swags go with it. If you'd like to support the show because we are ad-free and sponsor-free, sadly, go to patreon.com. It helps cover our costs. The show is free for you, but it's not for us. And the Patreon supporters, we really appreciate lots because you help. Well, number, we know you're out there. And number two, it helps us cover our costs of the show. This week, we are heading to the Joliet, a Blues Brothers term. <laughs> due north to due time. No used prophylactics though, please. <laughs> <laughs> Still, every time I – that movie was on television just recently. Every time I see that movie, you just – you can't turn it off. It's just one of those cracking bits of gold from
2: start to finish. Absolutely. Great movie. Hey, listen, just quickly, uh, we – us being a rock and roll show, I don't think we can uh, do this episode without tipping our hat to the passing of Little Richard in the past few days. Um, Little Richard is – well, mate, he's the god of rock, basically, they call him. He's one of the founding fathers – He's one of 10 inaugural recipients of the Grammy Awards for Lifetime Achievement. Just quickly, I, over the weekend, I noticed names like Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Paul McCartney, Bruce Springsteen, amongst a bunch of others, had something to say about Little Richard on Twitter. But I, th- I found one that I thought you'd be really interested in, and it came from Elton John, and he said this. He said, when I first saw Little Richard standing on top of a piano, all lights, sequins, and energy, I decided there and then that I was going to be a rock and roll piano player. I thought that was... Pretty high place, praise from someone I know you've got a lot of respect for. Did you go to the he toured. He toured Australia with Bob Dylan.
1: Yeah. Uh, and a few other guys many, it was many years ago. A while ago.
2: No, I didn't go, I'll confess. But um
1: And we took the Triple M giant Stereo parked oh, in the car park for all the crowd that arriving. Yeah. And then Bob Dylan came on, he was so boring, we went out and we'd set up a swag and slept the back of the giant stereo because he was so boring. But um, that does going to lose some listeners. Uh, but Little Richard played and a whole bunch of other legends from that period, Chubby Checker. No, it was a Chubby Checker, no, it was Chubby Checker. no it was someone like that.
2: Robbo's Remarkable Facts. let's go. This week's show is all about prison, so I found something I thought was appropriate. Did you know that the longest prison sentence ever served was actually served right here in Australia. A guy called Charles Fossard, who was a French immigrant, in 1903 he was convicted of murdering a man for his boots and sent to the J Ward of Ararat Lunatic Asylum where he stayed until his release in 1974 at the sprightly age of 91. But here's the kicker, he'd actually been pardoned in 1968 but in a fit of panic that will be familiar to anyone who's ever watched The Shawshank Redemption, he was too afraid to leave the only life he'd ever really known. So took up the offer to further therapy to help him on his way and get out of prison and live a normal life. So 91, he finally got out. Hmm. It is a remarkable. It's, but, you know, you see that a lot with guys on movies and stuff.
1: I guess it's probably the, the greatest insight we get into prisons, although there are some pretty dark... Documentaries on prisons around the world on Netflix and so on, but um, you see quite often people reoffend because they want to get back. In. Well, almost they they throw caution to the wind because the downside of going back inside for them is not that.
2: That's right. It's like not going back home. a stretch.
1: Yeah, with their uh, so-called compatriots. Imagine that. No, not
2: knowing. Not. I think he was, from memory, I think he was seventeen or twenty-one, maybe, when he went to prison. But um, that would be the, and like getting out at 91, that's, that's it, life over, game done. I mean, I think he died at 93 or something. So, wow. incredible. The Mojo Radio Show.
1: This, this show is actually a story of redemption and it's a story of change. It's a remarkable story about changing identity from how you see yourself not just yourself, but how you see yourself doing good and being of service to others. And this is, this is uh, it's, a, it's a great book called The Master Plan by a guy called Chris Wilson. And it brings us a look in, a guy who changed how he saw himself to look and desire respect, joy, fulfillment, and even peace within himself. Chris grew up in a really tough Washington, D.C. neighborhood. And as you'll hear as a kid, he slept in the bathtub because he was scared of bullets coming in through his bedroom window. And as a teenager, he was so afraid for his life, he would not leave the house without a gun. And then one night, found himself in a bad predicament, defending himself, shot a guy. He was 18 years old, sentenced to life in prison with no hope of parole. And the book that I've read, and I've read it a couple of times actually because i really enjoyed it. It's called The Master Plan. And it follows his life from prison for shooting this guy to what he calls a life of purpose. And it's kind of a memoir of a young guy who it's purely used hard work and his master plan to turn a life sentence into a second chance. And inside Joliet, he just worked on himself and there was a turning point, which we'll discuss, where he turns inwardly and just goes on this journey of self-improvement, reading, working out, even learning languages and starting a business. His master plan is basically a list and a a process of what he expected to accomplish or acquire, even though he was in prison for life. And he worked on his plan every day for years until he finally convinced a judge to reduce his sentence and become a free man. And today he's doing a lot of great social good. He's an entrepreneur and he helps people like himself to do good. He's obviously an author. He's a public speaker. And I think As I said, this is a story of redemption and this is probably a great story that embodies, I don't know, the the right to a second chance. It's a great story, great book. Chris, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: You've got a remarkable story that I want to track through and I want to sort of follow your story through your book. But if you are on the street today and somebody meets you and asks you what you do, how do you like to reply?
3: (laughs) Now it's kind of hard to answer that question because I do so much, but I usually just say that I'm an artist and social justice advocate, even though I'm involved in a whole bunch of stuff. It's just easier to say that, you know.
1: If we go back through your starting point, Chris, and we don't often do this on the show, but I think this is really important contextually to follow your story to where you are today. But right. tell me, tell me about your childhood. What can you remember from the earliest part of your childhood? What was it like where you lived? What were you surrounded by?
3: Well, I like to, I like to uh, describe it as it was a very, very violent neighborhood, and I was a very uh, quiet um, child that liked to read. A lot of gun violence, a lot of drugs. Um, it was, it was, it was really bad growing up for most for most part of my years.
1: You know, it's, it's funny you read about how bad it was on the streets and in your home with you growing up, but there's a piece in the book where you said it was so bad you never actually slept in your bed. Instead, you slept on the floor because you were scared of stray bullets coming through your window. <laughs> it was that bad, wasn't it?
3: Yeah, it was that bad, and sometimes I would uh, get in the bathtub and, and sleep because the bullets back then, they would uh, go straight through our houses, like go through one side and come out the other. And so we would just get on the floor or get in the bathtub. And that was that was regular. It would be shooting almost every day.
1: It, and it was in your home as well because your mum took up with a police officer and it got so bad one time where he beat her basically unconscious. So you're 14 years old and you've got to pick your mum up and drive her to the hospital or the police station. Did that start to frame how you saw the police, how you saw society? Like were you starting to get a sense in yourself of what was ahead for you and having a dislike of those around you, like authority?
3: Right. So that's exactly right. It was exactly that moment when I I tried to take my mom to the hospital, but I ended up uh, arriving at a police station. I got them confused. And it was the way they treated us um, that really like, just changed my view towards uh, police and authority figures. I actually wanted to be a police officer when I was younger. And then that definitely changed my mind.
1: Tell me, if if you can, Chris, just imagine that time when you're 14 years old and this has happened, your mum's beaten senseless by a police officer, then you take them to the station, you get treated the way you are. So you've got that frame of starting to build a part of your character. Yet at the same time, you're a kid who loves books, and love the library, which is really odd to be surrounded by that, but then actually have this love of learning and libraries. Can you remember the dichotomy in your mind at that time?
3: It was one of those things where I wasn't really good at sports. I was somewhat socially awkward, didn't have a bunch of friends. And the library was a place where I could not necessarily physically, but but mentally I could escape like my reality. And through reading or sitting in, while some librarians would have sessions where they would read to us, and I would be able to leave and imagine that I lived a different life or that, you know, it just was comforting for me.
1: From, from where you are at 14, you end up in the Hickey School, Maryland's long-term prison for juvies, for juvenile offenders. How, how did you get there? How did it go from that time of being in a library, being at home? How did you end up? In a, in a prison for juvenile defenders.
3: Right. So I, I write about it and it, it happens actually pretty fast over a period of like maybe a year or two. And it went from my mom being attacked to being um, over-prescribed pain pills and being hooked on pain pills and eventually using drugs. And then, so there was no food in the house. Uh, like the electricity was going out, the gas was going out. And so we were spiraling downhill. And at the same time, I was losing friends to gun violence about every two to three months. And so that had an effect on me where I started carrying a gun. I started becoming um, hypervigilant. And it wasn't like counselors and and therapy for me or any of us um, back in my community. And so I was just coping with it the best I could. And eventually I ended up in hickey school.
1: What specifically put you in the juvies?
3: So I was, uh, you know, I started carrying a gun and There were people who was not from my neighborhood who had a beef with folks from my neighborhood. But I was like a young, young person. So, you know, I I didn't even know what the beef was about. And these guys who were much bigger, much older than me, about five of them, they got out and they tried to jump me um, and beat me up. And I pulled my gun and and fired some shots in the air, not hitting them or trying to hit them. And then he ran off. And so I was arrested for that and sentenced to um, a juvenile facility.
1: You know, it's funny, Chris, at that time you get put away and you spend time in Hickey and then you're in there for a year, then you get out, but the first thing you do is go and buy guns. And you said in the book that you saw your life as a tour of duty in a combat zone and you had to stop believing in that future. Tell me what I'm really curious about with people who have these visions of the future is that when you're in the library, you just said it was a place of safety I could start to dream. But then when you got out of Hickey you said you stopped believing in a future. Just tell me what changed there. What was that like at that moment where you got out and suddenly you were back on the street and you're back in your in back in the combat zone?
3: Well, it was um I don't know, it was very, very odd for me, uh, that transition, especially after being in hickey school when I when I had a chance to see how uh brutal um or how careless the system was about me, about young people in general, and so it kind of just took away—I uh, don't know—my hope and like humanity, so to speak. I don't know if that makes sense. Mm. But it, it just changed me.
1: Soon after you got out, your son I was born, but you still. You still don't make the change, and it's really interesting because a lot of people, when they have a child, it is a turning point and they start to realize responsibilities and but it didn't change how you saw things. What's it like in that world where even you had the greatest thing which which is most people would say the greatest thing in their life is having a getting married or having a child why Why was that not enough to turn you?
3: Well, I felt like that temporarily, that I was very happy. Um, And that I wanted to um, be a father and and take responsibility. But it was so hard for me. And it was, you know, you have to grow up really fast. And so it was, you know, we were already doing bad in my house, so to speak. And now I I have someone that I'm responsible for. and I need to get a job and that's difficult. But I'm also, I need to uh, go to school and get out of school. And then it's dangerous at my school and people are shooting and dying. It was just so much stuff that it was overwhelming for me.
1: There's a a chapter in the book called One Shot and all that's going on and then there's an event which literally changes the course of your life. Just take us back to that night and what happened.
3: Right. So I was uh, not too far from my house and I was walking and I noticed uh, two men um, that I thought was maybe following me. I didn't recognize them so I didn't think they were from my neighborhood and so I decided to walk somewhere where like a gas station where there was a lot of people and it was light. Um, and then maybe, you know, if they were trying to do something to me, you know, they probably wouldn't do it in front of all of these people. And so I had a gun on me. I did, I just didn't want to use it. And so um, I walked up to the gas station and then these two men surrounded me and started threatening me and, you know, told me that they know where I live at and don't think that I'm safe. And then a, a, one of the guys tried to get behind me and I just panicked and I pulled my gun and I just started firing and they ran off. And then I ran in a different direction and turns out that I had took a person's life.
1: When you think of that moment, Chris, if you close your eyes, what's the most profound thing you hear or see when you take yourself back to that moment? Tell, tell me what you were feeling. What, what was it like in that moment? What do you recall the most?
3: Just maybe just fear. Uh, and just not, so there was a point a couple of uh, instances before that where I was kidnapped or almost killed and, you know, was going to so many funerals. And, you know, no one wakes up in the morning and thinks, like, today's the day that I'm probably going to die. And so I kind of felt like everything happened so fast and I just panicked. And all I can remember, actually, is just the sound of the gunshots. And then the rest, everything else was just blurry after that and me just running. And then, like, my heart beating and, and just trying to breathe and just
1: running. I was talking to Robo when you agreed to come on the show, Chris, because there was a piece of the book, which I thought was just an amazing learning for all of us, particularly for parents with the impact you have. And it's something you talked about. There was your mother's voice was going through your mind at that point, which almost encouraged you to pull the trigger. Tell us about that voice and why you believed in what your mum was saying to you in your subconscious.
3: So I, I remember when i was kidnapped and somehow i survived it and i had used the bathroom myself and i finally like had made it home and i remember like some of my i had friends over and they just was kind of like smirking laughing like well how'd you let it happen when you had a gun on you and it and it was it wasn't what i was expecting to hear at that moment you know you're expecting you know to get a hug from your mom it's like "I'm, i'm glad you're here i'm glad you're okay but it was like how'd you let this happen to you and so fast forward to the night um, of the incident, all I kept thinking about was like, what if, what if I get killed or what if something happens to me? And everyone, again, is going to say like, well, what are you even carrying a gun for if you don't want to use it, if you're not going to use it? And I kept thinking about that voice. And I don't know, like so much stuff was happening. I just wanted to survive.
1: It's powerful though, isn't it, Chris, that when you dissect, and I suspect that whole thing happened in a matter of 20 or 30 seconds six shots. But it's amazing when you dissect it because it makes up a core part of the book. And even you telling the story here, it's amazing how, what parents do with their expressions, what was said, what wasn't said, but it was said in body language, the actual words and how something that we do can have an impact on a child to recall that moment, to make a really good decision or a really bad decision. Do you think of that often with Derrico now with the things that you're doing, saying, expressing that the impact it's having on him?
3: Absolutely. I mean, I, I think about him every day. Um, he's, he's still in a place in his life where he's, he's battling a lot of internal stuff. Um, you know, I talk about when, when he was shot, and I mean, it's just, I mean, it's an issue that's happening all over America, but I was very concerned about the um, Oxycontin, the pain pills that they give you, mm-hmm. um, and he was never able to get off of them. And him being shot and being hooked on the pain pills, them, it, it turned him into a different person.
1: You know, I was thinking about you this morning, Chris, before we called, and there's been a lot in the media. You're in New York City. It's talked about here in Australia. It's talked about all over the world. There's a pandemic right now, which is in some cases putting us into complete lockdown. For others, it's kind of lockdown, but not framed as lockdown. And people are having to look at other people to be entertained or to be informed or to help them with their social isolation. And it made me kind of, I was kind of amused in a way because- there's a part in the book, and I was trying to close my eyes and imagine what it's like. But once you get sentenced, they take you and put you into solitary confinement, which essentially was a white cell with just a cot and a small food slot in the door, and you sit down and cry. It's funny, it's all relative, isn't it? That when I think about what people are going through, and look, I, I understand, you know, families in a small apartment in the middle of New York, lockdown, that's tough. But in your mind, You've kind of done the absolute – it's all relative. You've done the extreme of isolation in just a white room with a cot. What do you remember of that moment?
3: Oh, my goodness. Like, that's something that's, like, tattooed on my brain, and I've been thinking about that almost every day uh, during this isolation. And, you know, I jokingly talk to some of my friends who were incarcerated with me, and I tell them, this lockdown, just like the best lockdown I've ever been on, but – um back to when I was in prison, like, it was absolute, uh, it, it was torture. I mean, you think about, like, I was sentenced to life in prison, so, you know, I had no idea if I would ever get out of prison. I was young, um, no interaction with, with people, couldn't really hear anything. Um, you go crazy after a while um, being in there, and I, I'll never forget it, you know, and you try to use every spare moment, while you're in there to think of like pleasant things, thinking about peanut butter and jelly sandwiches growing up, or any kind of happy moments, you start to count the bricks on the walls and any anything that you can do to keep yourself sane. And so I remember it.
1: It's really one of the most profound bits of the book for me, Chris, the way you described it. And the reason I think it's so interesting is because we had a guy called Joe DeSena who created Spartan Racing. And Joe... We talked about some of the extreme races he'd done, which in any man's language were brutal. But he said, Well, it's kind of all relative because I did this race, which I found brutal. These were actually quite easy. And he said, I know it upset the I know it upset the organizers, but he said, it's all relative, isn't it? And when I read the book, there's a chapter called Solitary. And it says, There was no human contact. The guards were forbidden to talk or touch us. I couldn't see or hear other inmates. I was given one hour of exercise a day in a walled-off courtyard by myself. It was basically a bigger cell, but at least I could see the sky. There were no windows in my cell, no bars. I saw nothing. 23 hours a day, but walls. I counted the concrete blocks. I studied the ceiling. I rubbed the concrete just to feel the rough patches and cracks. I turned on my sink and watched the water. I did push-ups until my arms were dead. There was a slot in the metal door where they passed through the meals. It was usually covered, but when the food arrived, they unlocked the metal flap, folded it down to make a tray. I, I just find that powerful for all of us is that when we go through this thing that we call social isolation, it's all relative and this is the extreme. And does it make you appreciate, do you, do you actually find yourself today, Chris, appreciating Freedom and appreciating the things outside of solitary.
3: Oh my goodness! Uh, every single day, I swear. I was just um, just walking around my place and just I was thinking about that, and it was like, you know, um, I, I try not to watch too much of the news because of what's going on, but I do watch it like every day, and then I just think about how lucky I am, and and I keep saying, well, I don't know when we'll be able to go back to normal, whatever that means, but at least. It's not the solitary confinement that I experienced when I was incarcerated. So I'm definitely never going to complain.
1: You're given life, and in the state of where you went to prison, there was a saying that said, life is life. And you said in the book, I never thought about the future. Why bother? I had life without parole. What was the turning point? Chris, because I think you know, in in a, in a funny way, we we kind of all imprison ourselves, and we, for whatever reason, we become too busy, we lose faith, we lose whatever, and we stop dreaming. And yours is the extreme, the extreme version of this. When did you start to dream of a future? What changed your mindset where you went from that default of "I have no future, why bother" into actually? I can change this. I can dream of a better future.
3: I think it was about two years into my incarceration. And I, had, you know, at this point, I had fell into a deep depression, you know, smoking weed every day, all kinds of madness happening around me. And I kept thinking to myself that, like, I'm a good person, or how'd I end up in here? And I actually, you know, these men came after me. I didn't even want to do, I didn't even want to shoot them. Like, I didn't want to do this, but, like, why do I have to stay in here? And I met someone who also had a life sentence who eventually became my mentor, but we just started talking. And he was just like, you know, they've taken everything from us, but no one can take our intelligence, like our knowledge. So that's why we should learn and then, like, work on our case and then get out. And, and that, that's, how we, um, that's how we turn our lives around. And I thought about it for a couple of days, and it was like that moment is when I wrote up, I called it my master plan, and, you know, I sent a, co- a copy to my judge and a copy to my grandmother. And then I just was like, this is what I'm doing.
1: That guy, your mentor, was Steve Edwards. Initially, what's in, what's what's really curious about this is initially you look down on Steve. You said you'd watch him and go, oh, look at his clothes, look at this, look at that, look at him reading books. You kind of looked down on him. What was the turning point where you where Steve actually said or did something where you went, hmm, maybe maybe there's something in this. What happened?
3: Well, you just you know, I kept thinking about, you know, what had led me to present. What was going on currently in prison? And I just started thinking, like, you know, my old way of doing things just hasn't been working out for me over these years. And <laughs> I, <you> know, <laughs> it just wasn't working out. And, you know, I wanted to get my high school diploma. It was just like educational um, goals that I wanted to achieve. And he was good at these things. And it was like, why am I making fun of him when this guy is smart and tutoring and helping folks? This is actually what I need. And so I just started to see it differently. And it's like, well, you know, I don't know. I mean, I guess I started maturing.
1: It's funny. There's a, a word you use in the book, Chris, and you say that you started using positive delusion. And it's funny that in sports psychology, they talk about some of the greatest, the best of the best delude themselves into thinking something about themselves or their performance. Even when they lose, they delude themselves by saying, well, that was an anomaly. That's not really me. That's not going to happen again. And they use this positive delusion, which can be destructive. And what I'm curious about is you talk about this positive delusion that you and Steve put yourselves in. But I suspect that that was a change because you probably had a negative delusion on the street, which got you into prison. And at some point, you went from negative delusion to positive delusion. Explain, explain your mindset through that period. Is that accurate? And how how did that all come to be?
3: Well, it was it's def- definitely accurate. Um, it's one of those things. I think I was I was reading uh, in solitary confinement. I, I think I was in solitary confinement this time for about uh, sixty days, fifty days, and I um, had read this book. Um, and it was about John McCain when he was locked up in Hilton in Vietnam, and there was a guy who was locked up beside him, and he would always say, "We're going home by December," and they were there for years, and they knew they wasn't going home in December, but like they would, they would just believe it for a couple of months, and they it just was they were able to get through their days. And so, you know, me being in prison, you know, and having this positive illusion, I just had to believe that I would be free one day. And when I started believing it, I started telling myself, since I'm going to be free, I need to make sure that I'm prepared and educated and that like I embrace therapy so that I'm ready when I get out. And, and to be honest with you, I still operate with a, a positive delusion, especially now with all that's going on in the world. Um, I just I, I stay optimistic, especially like it's more so um, regarding entrepreneurship and in my social advocacy work, I just believe that I'll be successful. And I just work differently if I believe that I can win or if that I can close on a deal.
1: It's incredible during the book, Chris, how you went about educating yourself. And I won't sort of go into too much because I want people to actually get the book and read it. And But you you get your high school diploma in prison and then your mum doesn't show up at the ceremony. So you're there by yourself. And you said it hurt, but it wasn't. I wasn't the old Chris Wilson. Tell me about, identity's been a bit of a thread through our show for a number of seasons, Chris. Tell me when you step back from the old identity of Chris versus today's Chris, what's the difference in identity, how you see yourself?
3: I think it's, it's very important for me um, to, to just remind folks that a lot of my, my transformation um, happened with the combination of um, therapy and, and going to school oh, embracing school. A lot of people can just go to school, but I started embracing um, school education, vocational shops and in college. And so I, I formed these relationships with teachers and what, what happened, like in a combination through like therapy and learning about myself and just people and through education, it started building up my confidence. And as my confidence started building up, the more and more things I accomplished, I got my high school diploma in like two months. And I was like, Wow. I did it in two months and, I did, and they said, well, try vocational thought. It's a two-year program. I did it in 13 months and then I built a lot of stuff. And so I started telling myself or believing that I'm intelligent and like what else am I capable of? And then when I got into college, it just exploded and, and my mind was just open to, like, to, to the whole world and I just, I just turned it up when I got into college.
1: And it's funny, Chris, because I, I think you being on the outside now, And I know you've been back and visited the the inmates who were quite close to you for so many years inside. And there's a point where you talk about your identity and and how you saw yourself or how others would see you, particularly those around you, like the guys that were running the prison. And you said, I don't want to be known as a lifer, or you don't want to be known as your crime, or you don't want to be known as a number 265975. You didn't want to live with that identity. That to me seems a real turning point that's been you turning your life around inside and then outside of prison. Has creating that identity away from those things helped you to stay on the straight and narrow?
3: Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought that up because that's something... Um, I, I mentor a lot of people all around the world and, and people message me. And that's one of the things, one of the messages I try to champion as much as possible, um, that identity, because it's important and it's necessary. And a person has to believe that it's possible and have to want it. You can't just force it on someone. So this is an important point.
1: The, the book is called The Master Plan, My Journey from Life in Prison to a Life of Purpose. And you you show through the book, you talk about the master plan. How would you describe what the master plan is, Chris, to somebody who wants to get on board? And also what does your master plan look like, physically look like today? Like what makes up your master plan today that might have been different to how when you first started in prison?
3: Right. Um, so so I, the first uh, master plan is more of like a philosophy of life, Um And it's 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 about, like, thinking internally, like, what your purpose is and trying to figure out what that is and dreaming about it and working backwards and, like, figuring out what you need to do to get there. And so, again, like, my book isn't about prison. My book can apply to anyone, maybe as someone who works um, in a supermarket and who always wanted to be, like, a bird watcher, spend their summers in Brazil. And it's like, all right, if that's your master plan, you write it down. And you figure out how to achieve it, and so um, I still I still um, operate with a master plan. I've actually completed about ninety eight percent of it of it, um, and I've added some more stuff to my master plan. But it gives me purpose when I wake up in the morning and I can check off things on my boxes or get closer to my goals. Or when I accomplish my goals, I celebrate.
2: You
1: you said earlier in the interview you said you shared your master plan regularly with Judge Wood, your grandmother, and your lawyer. And that eventually paid off. Do you think it's important to share your master plan with others?
3: Yeah, so it's it's critical. So I, I always tell people, it's like someone who's like, I want to go to the gym and I want to start working out. And then you could say that and then maybe you fall off, but it's different when you have a workout partner or someone who's holding you accountable. And so with the master plan, I say it's important to share your plan with one or, or multiple people and give them the power to hold you accountable. So if they see you one day and you're supposed to be studying for your mechanic license and you're just you know BSing around, like they should get on you and say, well, why are you not studying? Don't you want to be a mechanic? What are you wasting your time for? Or are you just all talk? Like, what are you doing? And so it's good to have folks like just watching you and to see how you're progressing on, on your master plan.
1: Who or what are the book crushes?
3: <laughs> I love it. So, at, at a certain point, at a certain point in, in present, I started to meet a handful of people who were just avid readers. Um, but, like, readers uh, would read stuff that would, like, uh, feed your soul or just, you know, educate you. So, like, biographies, self help books, history books. And we would trade books. And at a certain point, you know, we all had the ability to, like, take a 300-page book on average, read it in, like, less than two days. And then I was able to, like, retain, like, 70% of, like, what I read. And I would take notes and I would journal. And so for years, um, this, this group of us um, started this book club. And we just would read everything, every book that come out. Like, you know, books by Malcolm Gladwell and, like, you know, self-help books and, and, and the newspaper. We read everything. And we would share this information. We just became the crushers. And it's like big stack of books come in and we just, we all crush them, crush all of them.
1: It's a good identity, isn't it? I mean, that even just saying that sounds different to, yeah, I read some books into, no, no, I'm a crusher.
3: Yeah, I crush books. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Chris, you get out of prison and I think you were 32 years old. Did you start to compare yourself to others around you? Like you get out and, The people you knew outside were living in a dark place. They were still surrounded by everything you had left when you went inside. Or people your age had jobs. They had nice cars. They had a family. Did you find yourself falling into the comparison trap of saying, here's my old identity. Here's what I should have. Did you feel a bit lost? Were you sort of in that middle part of comparison?
3: That was the most painful and challenging part of my re-entry back into society and, and a lot of people will assume that it's, you know, that struggle to find a job. And it is difficult to find a job. I was lucky. But that's the what you mentioned is the most painful thing because it's the, it's the reason that most people will, um, I guess, recidivate, go back to prison or risk it. Because you get out, you're 32 years old and you see people your age who have families and children and like a car and a truck and they go on vacations and they got a job and like they do all the uh, regular stuff. And you don't have anything you may be like sleeping on your mom's sofa or or in my case in my, in my friend's basement on his sofa and it messes with you psychologically like i would walk up to women and be like you know at, at like a bar or something it's like is, do you mind if i introduce myself to you and it would be like where you work at like what kind of car you drive and like what, what's up with this phone like my, my outdated phone i had and like it would affect me and it's like well You know, I would be upset about it, but it was something I was glad I had people around me who provided emotional support for me um, to keep me, keep me focused on what I should have been focused on.
1: Do you know, towards the end of the book, Chris, you, you've, you've gotten out, you've got your identity, you continue to crush books. You've always had a dream of being an entrepreneur. You do that. You start to do well and you buy yourself a Corvette and Why that's significant is because even as a child playing on the floor, you had a matchbox toy that was a Corvette. So it's kind of this roundabout way of showing how dreams can come true if you hold that dream in your master plan and that end game. However, what I found fascinating is that that car basically became a magnet for the police and you said you got pulled over 26 times, man, in two years. Two years, and minutes. I just, yeah. honestly, I read that part a couple of times, Chris. I cannot imagine where you'd come from and 26 times the police pulled you over because you are a guy driving a Corvette. I mean, you just, that's that's a, it's a red flag to a bull. Yet each time, yes. whether it be true or not, they could almost find a reason to lock you up. But once they see your record, it's all over. You're back in where you came from. You must have been living in enormous fear during that period.
3: I was terrified. And there was a couple of times where I was almost sure that they were going to plant something in my car. Or they was just, they just was, I don't know who they thought I was, but, and I still, to this day, I've never got a ticket. And I got pulled over all those times. And they would just, like, make up stuff. And they would be like, well, you didn't use your turn signal. And I said, well, actually, I did use my turn signal. I just got my driver's license. And so I know the rule. It's like you should use your turning signal 100 feet before you get to the corner, which I just did. And they was like, what did I just say you did? And I was like, okay, officer. you <laughs> <He> say so," because <laughs> this is
1: bad. Honestly, I can't imagine because the book talks about what it's like to be in prison, then to get out and have your freedom, just start to get used to it. Yet the other part that I found a bit curious is that you sold the Corvette which must have been, I guess, in a way, challenging. But was the Corvette dragging you into an identity that really wasn't you? Like, was the the Corvette, although you'd always dreamt of it, was it pulling you into an identity that really you weren't? That's
3: an interesting question. It's, it's it's interesting because I was very upset when um, my one of my mentors made me get rid of the car, and but but it, when I think back on it now, I kind of appreciate it, right? So he, I was like, you drive a nice car. And he was like, but you can't. And I was like, I don't understand. I'm not breaking the law. I'm, like, I'm a legit person. Like, Why can't I drive a nice car? And he was like, but you're getting pulled over so many times and people get killed. And it's like, you you can't do it. A black man in Baltimore, you can't do it. And so I was very upset. But what I was happy about when I think about it now was my level of, of discipline and being willing to like sacrifice for the greater good, which is, in, is an important lesson for anyone. It's like, you know, um i did go back and buy a new corvette um you know uh, a few months ago 6 months ago so i got the latest best drop top convertible corvette It's outside now um but you know it's different now like i have close relationships with like the police the the commissioners and like the chief of the um, fire department so i know everyone in my city now and they all we all joke and laugh about it now and they they tell me if i ever get pulled over to make sure that i, I, I reach out i got number to call <laughs>
1: you know, which leads me on to something else, Chris, and I'll set this up in a roundabout way, but eventually you're invited to the White House to receive the President's Volunteer Service Award. So you get out of prison, you turned your life around, man. You, you, You did all the right things. You completely committed yourself to being an entrepreneur, doing the right thing, being of service to others. So on May 20, 2016, four years after you get out, you are invited to the White House, get to the front gate and the Secret Service of the White House deny you entry. Right. Take us back to that time because it's almost like others, although you've moved on and the the president has acknowledged the wonderful work you're doing in society, because of your record, other people allow you to carry that identity of being a number or a lifer or a prisoner. Take us to that time and what you learned from it.
3: I mean, that was so strange, by the way. And and just like Secret Service are like very serious people too, by the way. So even trying to like talk and negotiate with them, there's really no negotiating or whatever. They just tell you how it's going to be. Um, And so it was just so weird. And it's like, but you don't understand, sir. Like I I won an award by the president. Why can't I like get in? just like you, you. You can't get in. Like, you know, you don't clear like a security check. And I knew like at this point, very influential people. And they called into the White House and said, you know, we're gonna run a story tomorrow on, on, on CNN um about this. Like we we're getting the story ready now. You need to let him in. And I got clear. And so um and it's crazy, like I got cleared to go in. And so on my way going into the White House and I'm excited, um, some guy, um, walks up to the gate and pulls a gun out on one of the secret service agents and they shoot him and so i don't go in the white house that day and so they eventually invited me back to the white house several times after that they felt bad and then they gave me private tours and i hung out on them. it was like drunk champagne it was just great just like thinking of i was i was once in prison and here i am in the white house um like with my suit on And I'm I'm pouring champagne. I can't believe it. And I'm just walking around and peeking over people's shoulders on desks and and seeing what they're working on. It was great.
1: In a quiet moment, Chris, first time in the White House, what does it really mean to you deep down in a quiet moment? Did you ever just pull yourself away from all that was going on and just with a sense of gratitude or whatever? But what deep down, what were you saying to yourself at that moment to go, man, I've come so far? Tell, Tell me that dialogue.
3: Well, that's what it was. It just—it's one of those things where I just kept pinching myself, and it's like, how did I like get up in here? And it's like, folks, who I saw or see on TV every day in briefings and stuff like that, and just like would come uh, speak to me and then say, "Hey, once you come check out, um, let me go show you something. Just show me around and just like just in the White House. I just like couldn't believe it. It was one of those things where it was really. Um, you know, when I talk about the master plan of creating like long term, short term, mid term goals, um, it was one of those things that I didn't have on my master plan, but it was one of those um things that really like brought um confirmation to like all of my hard work, and it really it made mm. me really want to go back out in society and work even harder.
1: Do you carry any regrets, Chris?
3: I do. I have a couple. Um, obviously, my crime that I committed, I have regrets about that. Um, and then maybe a few regrets of, of not. Um, spending enough time with my mom. Like my mom passed away. I had opportunities. I mean, I didn't know that she was going to do what she did. I just wish I had more time to, um, to spend with her.
1: Is there a question that if you had your time again, you'd ask your mom to help you reconcile all the went on? If, if you sat down and we were able to make it happen, w- what's the question you would ask your mom to try and make sense of your world?
3: I just... I think honestly, and I think about this a lot, especially my therapist, about like if, if I ever had that moment, um, I think what I would have done is I just would have I would have listened to her more. And when I was young, like my mom was sexually assaulted um in front of me and a lot of terrible stuff happened to her. What I didn't understand is what that does to what that what that could do to a woman or anybody. And and so I wasn't at I don't know, I just, I could have been better. Like every day after that, like my mom would be crying. She couldn't get out the bed, she couldn't work. And I would complain. Why is there any food in the house? Why is it electrical? Why is this? And this is crazy. I'm post, I'm a kid. Like we're supposed to have these things. And I just didn't understand like the trauma and, and what she was experiencing. And I and I wish I could mm. go back and be more sensitive to her
1: pain. I'm very uh, conscious of your time, mate. And this has been just wonderful as I expected it would. You and Steve- in prison, had a mural of a dung beetle on the wall. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> why? What? Why? What does it represent?
3: So we didn't tell people inside of the prison. Um, and most people didn't know about dung beetles, right? But we did. Me and my, my, me and Steve, and what it was about was the hard work. I mean, it's you know, it's dung, right? But like, the dung beetles are incredibly strong. They can lift like ten times their weight. They work hard as I don't know what. Um, and that's what it was about, and just, like, getting down, getting dirty, and, like, hard work. And that was, like, a message that we wanted to convey um, to folks. But we we didn't want to tell them what it was because, like, people on the outside looking in and just be like, man, that's, you know, it's, it's done. Like, what's, you know, they, they wouldn't get it. But some people would.
1: So today we've sort of covered off towards the end of this interview. Things are good. You've done the things you want to do in terms of being an entrepreneur. Tell me, tell me the work you're doing today at Barclay Investment Corporation, the businesses you're running, the mission you're working towards, like wh- where is, where is Chris today in business?
3: Right. So I split my time, um, between Baltimore and New York. So I have a studio. So I started painting, um, three years ago and I fell in love with making art. And it was something that my, my therapist really encourages it now. Um, but you know, I had the contracting company still still have it um i started making furniture and i fell in love with uh making art and so for the past three years i've been making art and selling my work all around the world been in like over 23 countries um doing shows uh i'm I'm painting right now and you know my work sells for like a, a bunch of money now and so like i got financial stability I started a Chris Wilson Foundation where um, I give scholarship money to folks in prison working towards their education degrees. I'm able to do stuff in my community, and so um, it's comforting for me because I feel like I'm in a space at at um, you know 41 years old of just like being the man that I've I've dreamed I always dreamed I could be, and so I'm just comfortable despite what's happening in the world. Um, I'm I'm just happy.
1: Chris, this has been. Fantastic! Since the minute you replied to me and said you come on the show, I'm looking forward to it. I, I've actually read the book twice. Oh, thank you. I I I, I really liked it. I um, and I think I don't know. We, before we started recording with you, I was talking to Rob Owen. You know, it's a wonderful story of redemption. It's a wonderful story of following dreams, having a master plan, specifically being of service to others. It's just a really good story of what you've been through to where you are today. Well done on doing it. The book's called The Master Plan, My Journey from Life in Prison to a Life of Purpose. And you, you're putting the rubber on the road, mate. Where, where do you send people to find out more about you, the book and stuff? Where's the hub for everything, all the, all the work you're doing? And
3: So I would say um, to go to my website, chriswilson.biz.biz and also follow me on Instagram, Wilson Baltimore.
1: Chris, thank you, mate. I um, appreciate your time. Appreciate what you're doing. Great stories. And uh, I think you've been through you've been the ringer. And I know you're inspiring a lot of people, mate. But um, thanks so much for your time. It's been great.
3: Appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
2: This is Tate Fletcher, Cage Fighter. Listen to Mojo Radio Show, or I'll be coming to see you. We've had a couple of ex-convicts on this show now, which probably spent speaks volumes about our guest list. But the thing that struck me about both of them one was a convicted armed robber and obviously today's episode. They're, they're actually so personable. They're, they're not, you, you have this stereotype in your head of what a, a hardened convict or criminal is. But that when you sit down and spend time with them, they're actually the complete opposite, aren't they? Some.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, true.
2: I think this this particular,
1: he went into prison pretty hardened from the streets. And he had to be hardened to survive until until he saw somebody and he saw a different identity in that person and chose that path. But this, to me, and I thought long and hard about getting Chris on the show, but to me it's an amazing story of the power of dreams. And even when everything's against you, having a dream. And it may not be exactly the dream the way it turns out may not be the dream you had, but by having a dream, sometimes you can find an alternate dream that you wouldn't have got to had you not taken the time to write your master plan. But the way he looked at himself through positive positive delusion is even though he was sentenced to life and where he was in that county, life meant life. So I think there's some really nice lessons as there was with Noel Razor Smith. The other thing that I think is, something you and I talked about after the show, after we'd recorded is you've got to be really aware of what we say as parents to our kids because that default voice, and I was kind of testing Chris when I threw that out there because it was in the book and he brought it back quick as a flash as to what that, that, that voice that was inside his head and that default voice helped him create his identity at that very moment where he pulled the trigger and that voice can play out an identity for good, as we've talked about a lot on the show, but I think it can also play out the identity for not so good. And I think it's a wonderful story, as I've said, of redemption and of change and how by looking at himself and believing himself, a different self-awareness, he's now using it for positive outcomes. And just a cool, um, a cool guy. I, I, um, I'm really glad we interviewed
2: him. Just because just you touched on it and something that occurred to me listening to you speak talking about what we say to our children, um, some people may sort of go, oh, well, I would never tell my son to you know, go shoot someone in the chest. But it can be little things, can't it? I mean, I as a coach, I stand on the sideline and I hear things parents call out to their sons at football games or in, in, um, in other aspects of life. And it may seem innocuous and not so harmful, but to a kid, it can be really powerful, can't it?
1: Well, yes, it can. And I think quite often we don't audit ourselves and we don't put ourselves in the shoes of the person hearing it, and that's two separate things. Intention, the way you intended it and the way somebody else hears it or reads it are two separate things. His mum didn't say shoot the guy in the chest. What she said was, Chris, you had a gun. Mm. So she didn't say to shoot anybody, but she created this intention in his head and it was that question, it was that phrase that he then kept, it, it, it played in his mind when that situation arose. So we've got to be really careful, not about just the words, but how they're phrased and how they're sent in an email to a team member, a text to a friend, or from the sideline watching a kid play. There's an excellent book called Bounce and it was written by the guy Matthew Saeed who was a world table tennis champion. And I was just looking at his new books this morning, ironically. And that talks about the fact that when we talk to children and they bring back an exam or they do something, we go, you're really clever. You're really smart. Man, you're such a good football player. Man, you're so good off your right foot. And what happens is we build this expectation with kids through our wording and our attentions, the emotion we bring to it. And then when they, when they are pushed and when it becomes hard, their recollection is exactly the way that Chris recollected what his mother has said is go, dad or mum or partners think I'm really smart. They think I'm really clever. This is really hard. If I get this wrong, they're not going to think that anymore. Mm. And the same thing on the footy field, same thing. So it's those throwaway things. We've really got to really audit what we say and it's not just in verbal but in how we send information, particularly digitally because people – People read it six or seven times in a different way, but th- and that that's a real art to think about not just yourself but the other person, child or person. What Matthew said talks about is we 're much better off saying the reason that you did so well is because you worked so hard to embed into children that when things get tough, if I work harder i 'll find success good good or the bad so I think it's it's a pretty deep subject and it's probably one of the reasons that we Go back to this, even with people like Andrew Paul, the Navy SEAL, who went to a very dark place. And we said, mm. What's the most important thing we can say to our children? He said, Every night I tell them I'm proud of you and I love you. And you could embed that into them, embed that into them. Because so often you see people, something happens, I just want to make my dad proud. Well, mum proud, partner's proud. Well, why didn't they know they were already proud? Mm. I think it's a very deep subject, and I thought that was a, a really nice take. It's something you picked up on as we uh, we finished that show. It's um, it's a good one. That default voice that we set in our kids' minds, they can carry that for forty years. It's really important.
0: The Mojo Radio Show.
2: So, um, Robo, you've got a little Willie. I do. <laughs> it's not the first time I've heard that either. Um, but yeah, I do. Nothing wrong with a little
1: Willie. No, nothing
2: wrong with a little willy. Absolutely. I well. Be proud. <laughs> It depends on who you ask, I suppose. Um, Yes, I did. I sent you uh, a Willie Nelson interview piece from The Howard Stern Show, which uh, I thought you might find interesting. And I presume since the fact you bring it up on the show, you probably have. The nightlife. The song Crazy,
4: Nightlife, and Funny How Time Slips Away. You wrote them all in the same week in the 1950s. This is around 1950. In the same week. That's right. You were that prolific. Or whatever, yeah. I was in a pretty good writing place, for sure. What, what, what makes a good writing place? How come, like in one week, what was going on in your life that made it so easy? Were you just so focused on music? I'm, I'm really, uh, you know, I was moving from Texas to Nashville. And, right. Uh, I wrote uh, those still songs. Still working as a DJ. Uh, yeah, I was still working as a DJ, but I went to Nashville to kind of break into the music. Yeah. And uh, I wrote those songs on the way to Nashville. There's something about, they say, driving Mm -hmm. a car. I was just learning about this over the weekend Mm -hmm. that it turns off the left side of your brain. So driving seems to be something that just frees you creatively, yeah? Yeah, if I really need and want to write a song today, excuse me, I'll get in the car and take off driving down the highway in any direction. It doesn't matter. And uh, I'll write a song. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And so when you write three killer songs like this, In one week while you're driving, Mm -hmm. that becomes, hey, that's my thing. I'm going to go drive, take a drive and see what comes out of me. Mm -hmm. And you don't know where these songs are coming from, right? They just kind of appear out of nowhere. Oh, yeah.
1: So, in fact, I've seen a couple of stories on this. This is really ironic. For some reason, this has become very topical. Even on Pinterest, some photos were sent to me during the week of Willie in his pickup truck. And Mm. I think the takeout for me is whenever I'm out speaking about innovation, disruption, or how leaders can lead innovation. One of the questions I always ask is, where do you find your ideas come to you? What are you doing? Invariably, it is running, swimming, uh, relaxing, when I'm sleeping, in the shower, on the toilet, on an aeroplane, when I'm driving, at the beach, sitting in a park, playing with the kids. And you say, well, what are the commonalities? It's when I'm chillaxed. And a lot of times it's when you're by yourself, which goes back to what Cal Newport talked about with deep work. But it's, it depends for everybody. And I think that this is just another great story. And Willie now has been going, I think he's been performing and playing for close on 80 years. I think he's 100 and something. Um, <laughs> and he's still pumping out tracks. And I think it's ironic that uh, at this day and age, with his age, he's still writing great songs if you're a Willie Nelson fan. But I think the where is just as important as the why or the what. And I think that's a good story and a uh, good story
2: about what where. A bit of a musical legend too, old Willie. Brothers, don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys.
1: Don't let them pick guitars or drive them old trucks. Let them be doctors and lawyers and such. So, pop quiz. Go, Mama, don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys. Yes. Name the two singers. Uh, That would be Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings. So here's here's my remarkable fact, is that sounds like Willie Nelson. It's actually his son, Lucas Nelson. Oh, wow. What a voice. And the other voice was Waylon Jennings, who sadly, uh, gone but not forgotten, and that was his son, Shooter Jennings. Oh, so cool. that, was the, that was off the soundtrack to a very successful Netflix series called The Ranch uh, with Sam Elliott and Ashton Kutcher, which I love. And that's the intro that plays before the show. Anyway, so that is the song originally was recorded by Willie and Waylon, two of the great country outlaws. But that's their two sons. But isn't it remarkable how close... Lucas Nelson sounds with his old man, and that's just—it's
2: incredible, isn't it? Just freaky, absolutely. Yep, there's something in the jeans in that one, and I don't mean the blue jeans. The Mojo Radio Show.
1: Okay, quite a long show, but quite a profound show of redemption and
2: Joliet. What have we got to close? <laughs> I got a pop quiz, hot shot. The Mojo Radio Show. Pop quiz, hot shot. Okay, I need song title, band. Most importantly, though, composer. See how you go. Composer? Composer. If you can pick the band, the composer will become obvious. They're calling time for exercise round her majesty's hotel. The maid will hose the room out while I'm gone. And I never knew such luxury before my verdict fell. Well, the Bathurst riots ended when they clubbed the rebels down, in every congregation, there was silence. You can hear the angels singing when Christmas comes around. Nothing?
1: No, no, I do. I, I know it, actually. It's, um, and I'm going to have, a, I, I, it's Australian. Mm-hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go Chisel Don Walker.
2: Nice. Two thirds of the way there. You've got the composer. <laughs> You've got the band. Uh... Name of the song? Think about a prison cell. I'll help you here because you've done so well so far. There's not much other than something to stare at and there's four of them.
1: Yeah, that's it. I, and it's, you know, it's one of those things I'd have to, I'd have to walk away and walk around to get the, <laughs> get the melody going well, because it sounds like a, it's a star hotel. or Yeah, it's close.
2: Close. There's, there's, no, in, I, in a prison cell, there's the four truth. of them and it's called Four Walls.
1: Ah right, yeah, yeah. Which
2: was one of two salutes that Don Walker made to um to to prisoners. But, God, yeah. Well, um, I mean, here's the thing that ins- that inspired me to bring this up was I've been reading Don's book, uh, and it's called Songs, um, and it's basically just a, it's a collection of some of his more obscure song lyrics with a few personal notes chucked in between. But that was one of the songs that he talks about. But I guess because I've been th- sort of Googling Don a bit since I've been reading the book. Uh, On my YouTube feed, an interview with Don um, and ABC Radio's Richard Glover popped up recently. And they were talking about the craft of songwriting. And I mean, Don's written, you know, K-San, Ita, Wild Thing, Star Hotel, Knocking on Heaven's Door, Don't Let Go, Flame Trees. You could go on and on. Um, a whole bunch of Chisel classics, which, uh, you know, for anyone who's not an Australian, these songs are anthems here in Australia and Cold Chisel would arguably be, be the best loved rock band ever to come out of this country. Um, but I was, I was really taken by Don's answer to Richard's question about not – they weren't talking about lyrics. They were talking about the actual notes and chords and stuff of writing music and this was Don's answer. Well, you sit there, you sit there and um... – in front of the piano, I guess.
4: No, 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 no. Okay. no I, I never do any of this in front of a piano. Uh, no, it's always, it's always in places like that, or in a park, or somewhere out. Ah, yeah, really? Yes. Yeah. With the tune playing in your head.
1: Yes. Right.
4: But how do you then capture that?
1: Cap- capture the tune. Well, I know, uh, I know what the tune is, and I can hear that. And, 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 and so can... you, you
0: let that stay in your memory. Well, yes. If, well, if it doesn't stay in your memory, it's, it, it probably
2: wasn't a very good idea. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it has its own testing system. That's right. So besides the fact that there's absolutely 10 minutes of gold in that interview for anybody who has to write anything in their life... I mean, for Don, that obviously works. There's no doubt about that considering some of the songs he's written. But if someone came to you as someone starting out in a business or something, or, or even I want to be a rock star, I'm going to come and, and go and talk to get some coaching from Gary Burtwissel, What would your advice be in, in terms of not writing it down?
1: Oh, you've got to work out from them how they process information, how they learn. So if you look at David Heinemir Hansen, he wouldn't write anything down. He narrated his driving test. If you look at Derek Sivers, he doesn't write things down because he's very auditory. So auditory learners are all about words, sound, context, tempo. They don't have to write things down because when they hear it, it's all about words. It's playing in their mind. Other people who are very visual need to see it. So they need to write it down and see the lyrics. They need to see the storyline. Kinesthetic people need to process it. They can't do it straight away. So rather than saying, what is it right now? They say, let me think about it overnight. I'll come up with a lyric for tomorrow morning. They need to process it and think about it for a period of time. They're tactile people. So it's not right to say it's one or the other. The first thing you got going to work out is how do people process information? And some people don't even know. It's so why when I said to Derek Sivis, your auditory, he said, no, I'm not. But then he picked up on the smallest little micro sound that he could hear that nobody else could say in the start of a song, which he loved. And that's why I said to him, "Well, don't tell me you're not auditory, because that's something only an auditory person would pick up." Which is why he does very—he doesn't like doing a lot of typing. He doesn't like doing a lot of visual things. So you've got to work out how people process it. It's not for everybody. Auditory learners, people like Don Walker who are auditory, who bring things in, Eddie Murphy's the same, which is why he can do such great impersonations because he can mimic sounds because he learns from sounds. They're the smallest percentage of learners. So they're only sort of 10 to 15% of any room will be truly auditory people. So it's a danger to make comparisons. 40 to 50% of people you meet are visual. They need to see it. They need to actually... Uh, see it written down,
2: see pictures, graphs, which is why Death by PowerPoint's killing presentation. That's what grabbed me about Don, though, was that he writes his lyrics down. He said, I have to write them down. I write them down as they come to me, but then he doesn't write down the music. I thought that was interesting. But anyway, there you
1: go. All right, what are we,
2: what are we going out with? Well, I don't think there's any choice is there. Prison, a show about prisons, chat about Don Walker. Right. We're
5: well, out. calling time for exercise around the Majesty's Hotel. And the up while I'm gone, never knew this luxury until my verdict fell, four walls, a washbasin, basin, prison bed, the Bathurst riots ended, when the club the rebels had, Silence. You hear the angels singing Christmas comes around. Four walls, a wash basin prison bed. For walls, wash basin. For walls, wash basin, prison basin.
0: mojo radio show is produced and recorded in the basement of voodoo sound for more tips and tools to get your mojo working check us out on facebook at the mojo radio show or online at the to help us get better and give more people the opportunity to touch up their mojo you can now find us on patreon Follow the links on the front page of our website and for a coffee or two a month, you'll get regular bonus material and a copy of Explosive Hits 19, the best of the Mojo Radio Show. In the meantime, to polish your next audio production, check out voodoo sound.com.au. For more about Gary, see GaryBertwhistle.com, and to book me, go to andrewpeters.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.